1: CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., i'm peter ernest the executive director of the museum i served for some 36 years in the central intelligence agency largely as what is called an operations officer or case officer every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors with authors with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage welcome back to part two of my interview with oss veteran peter sitchell after world war ii Peter joined the CIA, and in this interview, we'll be discussing his experiences in the agency, particularly in Germany. You now you stayed on in Berlin, and you were there at the time of the blo- of the blockade, the Berlin blockade in 1948-49. What what was Berlin like then? What was it like to be there, be working?
0: It was very surreal. It was very surreal because uh, though there was a blockade, there was still uh, complete freedom to visit the eastern the eastern part of the city. Uh, we, for instance, went to the opera in the Russian sector. Uh, uh, we were able to go anywhere within Berlin. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Berlin could not be supplied with food uh, uh, in a regular way, though food did come in from the East Germany. And it was an extraordinary change of the attitude of the population to us. There was at all times before the blockade a certain reservation on the German population as to the American and British and French and certainly the Russian occupation. The minute the blockade came and we supplied the city with food Suddenly, the population became extremely pro-American, pro-British, and even pro-French. And suddenly, we all worked together on a very, very, very uh, difficult problem. My problem, intelligence-wise, was to assess if the Russians were planning to move towards uh, against West Germany and uh, try to take the city by force. Uh, It was... A very very uh, tense situation, and a situation where we worked day and night, sending agents into East Germany in order to find out uh, the Russian dispositions of troops, their uh, 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 their p- preparations as far as as far as logistics are concerned, because obviously you can't make war without your logistics. We were lucky enough to have uh, complete uh, information on the Russian uh, use of the German railways because we knew without railways they couldn't do anything either. And we were convinced the Russians had no intentions of moving militarily against the West, which was fortunate because otherwise uh, another war might easily have uh, taken place.
1: I notice one of the terms uh, that you use uh, I used the other day, and people had no idea what I was talking about. I referred to someone as being a paper mill, and i yep. <laughs> noticed you've used the phrase "paper mill" as well as fabricators. And what what uh, was that? Was that a genuine problem at the time in your intelligence collection?
0: Yes, we were. Uh, we, uh, intelligence was an industry in in Berlin. You had the Brits, the French, uh, us. Uh, and later on the Germans uh, all anxious to get intelligence and you had people who claimed they had contacts who claimed they could provide intelligence and who had so-called uh, intelligence mills which means they didn't collect intelligence they made it up out of whole cloth and unfortunately a lot of people fell for that and we, we certainly in 45 uh, ended up falling for it for a while, but we learned uh, to assess it. we learned to check it, we learned to uh, send people to uh, to investigate the people who claimed to have sources, and in due course, we accumulated a long list of people who were responsible for creating intelligence out of whole cloth. And we also helped the army and the CIC. Uh, not to spend their money on stuff which wasn't worthwhile having but it was a real problem
1: and then a real the, problem you yeah. uh, you uh, when you left berlin uh, in 1952 and 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 then came to cia headquarters had you in fact uh been picked up by cia in the field cia in the field because oss disbanded at the end of the war and then cia was created in 1947 so had you Become a member of CIA in the field, as it were?
0: Yes. You see what happened, uh, uh, what, what most people who didn't live through that period didn't, didn't know it was, that we had changed from OSS to CIG to, uh, uh, to, to something else, and then CIA. But we who worked there never really changed our job. We filled out another questionnaire, and uh, our pay was still paid at the end of the month. We still have the same job. Uh, When the CIA came in, there was a somewhat more uh, careful uh, uh, questionnaire we filled out on our life history, etc. And I guess it was checked much more carefully because some of our colleagues left because they claimed to have... Academic uh, degrees, which they didn't have, but we were not conscious that we were actually starting a new job with a new agency. We still had the same job, we just had a different paymaster and a different boss, but the day boss was the same boss working for a different agency. How did Johnson. you? Uh, sorry, go ahead. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Oh,
1: absolutely, yes. Yeah. And so uh, you, you, uh, as I understand it, you came back, uh, reported to CIA, and you immediately yeah. were assigned uh, to the German desk. Were you chief of the German branch?
0: Yes, I was chief of the German branch for about, I think, three or six months. And then I was transferred as chief of operations for Eastern Europe, uh, working for Dick Helms. Uh, I think Dick Helms was there when I... Became uh, chief of the German branch, but he then had moved on to be the number two man in DTP, and uh, uh, and Johnny Bross became head of Eastern Europe, and I became its chief of operations. So
1: you must have dealt with the fellow that we had in very close uh, relationship uh, with General Galen. Uh, you must have known him as well, because I think he was in the German division at that time, wasn't he?
0: Uh, you mean you mean uh, Critchfield? Critchfield, yes. Yeah. Oh yes, he was indeed. I knew him extremely well. I had a lot of dealings with him, and uh, and I, I I I became a close friend. And I, as a matter of fact, I had some dealings with him when uh, the CIA asked me to assess to what extent when I was chief uh, as chief of station in Hong Kong. I was asked to uh, visit Pulak and meet with General Galen to assess. Uh, what his sources in Hong Kong and China might be worthwhile for us uh, as far as intelligence was concerned. And I flew to uh, to Munich on my way uh, back to, to Washington and spent some time with uh, Critchfield and with General Galen. Uh, unfortunately, it was uh, a bit of a waste of time because what the Germans thought were good sources turned out to be Nothing but imaginary sources.
1: Uh, are you referring to the sources that uh, Galen claimed to have? Yes, that, I do indeed. Oh. I do indeed. Y- you felt that there was not much to that, to what no, to Galen's was.
0: claims? No, there wasn't much to that. Uh, do you, really...
1: Did that become known to the CIA with time?
0: Oh, yes. And accepted? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely yes. It, I didn't keep it a secret. Yes, <laughs> it was my job to assess it. It was my job to report back, and I did.
1: Yes, the uh, it's interesting to note that uh, you you met so many interesting people uh, in in your time in both OSS and CIA, and one of the people you met, of course, has remained uh, almost a person of myth and mystery, and, and that's James Jesus Angleton. Yeah, could mm-hmm. you could you touch on on knowing him and and your sense of Angleton the man as well as uh, as you had with with Dick Helms,
0: yes, you know it's very funny. I very I had very little uh, professional uh, association with Jim, uh, but I knew him personally rather well. Uh, I don't know if he, he took a liking to me. Uh, he uh, he had a. Uh, he had a sympathy to to Jews, as you might, may know, because he worked very closely with the with the uh, Israelis, and uh, we became friends uh, more socially than uh, than professionally. And I had lunch with him often. Uh, we saw each other socially. He was a very charming man, a very well educated man, and it was before all this. This complicated system came about where uh, the where he got involved in in the in the uh, uh, the Russian defectors in the uh, Philby case, etc. I had left the agency long before, uh-huh. uh, and uh, so it was at a time when Jim was still in a much easier environment. He had come back from Italy, where he had done extremely uh, valuable work uh, in the elections. He had just come into the job uh, at CIA. Uh, he, wasn't, he was not yet a paranoid as he became later on. I even knew him after I left the agency. We had uh, some contact and I had dinner with him a couple of times when he came to New York. We had a personal friendship uh, outside of the agency. Was a very charming man, a very well-educated man. I knew his father. His father was uh, a major in uh, in Algiers when I was stationed in Algiers in 1943-44. So uh, I go, I went back with Jim a long time. So uh, he, he was he changed with time. He he didn't he didn't start being being paranoid. He didn't start having all these problems. And I think the time changed him. Which was a great pity because he, he was a great intellect uh, a, a wonderful wonderfully well educated and and intelligent and intellectual man, but I have a theory that uh, if you spend too much time in intelligence uh, it's very bad for you you should get out after thirty year after twenty years well they, you know, just,
1: they say that about spending time in counterintelligence which of course is yeah, where he yeah. spent his time yeah there yeah. there are, there are many people who who sort of say what you're saying about the early uh, the early Jim Angleton and yeah. some of them tend to date his paranoia his sense of, of uh, suspicions and so forth from the betrayal by Philby do you think, I think that that's true. do you think that had a really devastating effect on him
0: i think i think it did i think i think it did he i think was very fond of philby philby was a very interesting man a very fascinating man and to have to find out that he was uh, he had he had uh, been a spy all this this time for the Russians must have been must have been a, 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 a horrible thing for for Jim to go through. And then you ask yourself, was I indiscreet at times? You know, we were all indiscreet at times. Did I divulge anything to him which might have been of 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 of, of national interest? It must have been terrible for Jim. And it 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 could have destroyed all his self confidence. No, it, I think I think I uh, think Philby uh, was was the uh, the person who who destroyed uh, Angleton. But on that on that subject of of uh, the life and intelligence, uh, after a certain time, I think you ought to get out of it. Not not because of of, of not because of of um, paranoia but because you are living in a world which is entirely different from the world around you. And I discussed that with Alan Dulles once. I said, Alan, uh, we should have a system whereby uh, senior intelligence officers after uh, 20 years or whatever of service can be transferred to the State Department or somewhere else in the government at least for three or four years in order for them to, see the, to be in the open, to no longer have to live a, uh, a, a double life. It's very difficult after a while uh, to keep on uh, being not in the real world, but in the virtual world. Uh, I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. Well, I,
1: I do understand it because that was my world. Uh, yeah. I was overseas for, uh, I was in, in operations for 25 years, overseas yeah. for about half of that. So I know yeah. quite well what you're talking about. I'd be interested though, what was Alan Dulles' reply to you?
0: Well, I, I, I think he understood what I was saying. Uh, I think he had the other problem, how to do it. Yes. Uh, as you remember, uh, state was not very fond of us, and uh, 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 we had not the, what the Brits were able to do, uh, and which we ultimately were, were able to do. We have some senior officers that did uh, make the jump from from the agency to, uh, to state, etc., and to other parts of the government. That has all changed in the last uh, 20 or 30 years. At the time I was there, this was not possible. And I think now the system has been much improved uh, and to every, everybody's uh, uh, profit because you had people like uh, like um, I'm trying to think of um, some of the people who made the transfer, which i shouldn't mention anyhow, but some people made the transfer both to the profit of the agency and the profit of the government
1: yes well so, yes, there have been any no, there are any number of people now who are on uh, intelligence panels and one thing or another who have served in CIA as one thing or another, and they're quite respected for their knowledge. I think it has changed. Do you think that Bill Bundy?
0: Bill, Bill yes. Bundy is a good but example. Yeah.
1: Yes. Do you think that that period of the agents was a very heady period? Uh, it was formed in 47. Uh, you had the networking, uh, particularly among the Ivy League folks. You had people joining from the FBI. Do you think it, it, led to a lifestyle, uh, perhaps heavier drinking, uh, 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 sort of wilder times that eventually were somewhat tempered by becoming a more bureaucratic organization, an older organization, and do you think it lost anything in the process?
0: Uh, I don't know if it lost anything in the process. I think I ascribe to some extent uh, this uh, heady, heady feeling of, uh, uh, we had a feeling we, we were the last defense of the free world uh, and we had a whole bunch of people who felt uh, heavily committed to work uh, night and day doing the job and who felt they were the, uh, the last uh, uh, freedom fighters left in the world to uh, protect us from the Soviets. And uh, that had a feeling, which uh, uh, to some extent was unrealistic. Uh, brought with it uh, a certain excess uh, of uh, living high it also had another element which uh, it's very hard to understand during the war we had that feeling as you know like a fighter fi- pilot who lives on on the high much too much of the time uh, you had that problem in England of these people uh, adjusting to life after the war i think the uh, the uh, uh, frank witness uh, of this world uh, uh, who had that feeling uh, found it hard to adjust to life after the war. And we're still living the highs from the war. And there was a whole bunch of people that felt the same way about it. And uh, I think it's also the times. It's it's part of the people who lived through the war, uh, made the transition after the war, uh, and we're still trying to recreate that hive feeling of commitment. I, uh, it it had its advantages and its disadvantages. Yes.
1: The um, no, I think that's a very uh, a very valid observation that you're making. I was uh, obviously came in just as you were leaving, and let me before we end touch on that. You obviously had an extraordinary experience during the war, and even after the war. And at a relatively young age, you were you were appointed to be the chief of station Hong Kong, which was a very important station at the time. And it was while you were at that station and you were there for some years, as I recall, you made the decision to leave the agency, um, perhaps in part to go back into the real world, as you might describe it. Mm-hmm. But also, I think you felt extraordinary. You had very strong feelings about things that were occurring that you disagreed with.
0: Yes, I can talk to you about that. Uh, You see, when OPC was integrated into CIA, uh, in the initial stage, uh, OPC was handled separately from the intelligence collection. And I was associated in Germany uh, with... Uh, a situation where uh, the OPC in Germany was running uh, a so-called resistance group in the Ukraine, the Bandera group, etc. and they were sending agents into the Ukraine and they were sending arms, they were sending uh, support to a so-called large uh, resistance group in the Ukraine. At the time that happened, uh, I uh, criticized it uh, quite, uh, quite extensively because I said, number one, I did not believe that it was possible in the Soviet system for those resistance groups to exist. I was convinced that the Soviets created these resistance groups in order to, to attract us, in order to attract anybody who was against them, in order to eliminate any possible opposition. And I was proven correct. When I was sent to the Far East, I found we were doing the same thing in China. We had spent a considerable amount of money in uh, uh, Taipei, in Taiwan. We had recruited uh, Chinese in order to send Chinese into China in order to again Uh, support so-called resistance groups. And I was convinced this was exactly the same problem as we had had in the UK. And uh, we were spending an enormous amount of money, and also we were sending an enormous amount of people and equipment and money into China. And when we had a, a station's chief conference in Manila in 1950. Eight or nine, I took Dick Bissell aside and I said to Dick uh, that uh, I had been through that experience in Germany, that I was convinced that we were going through the same foolish exercise in China, and I did not believe that I wanted to be associated with an agency that sent people to their certain death because of lack of intelligence and lack of understanding how the opposition worked. Uh, Dick Bissell, who was an, ex- an extremely pr- brilliant man, uh, listened to me, did not argue with me. He sort of accepted what I said, neither said yea nor uh, uh, nay or yea, and ultimately, interestingly enough, when he wrote his, uh, his um, memoirs, which are extremely interesting, he admitted that uh, he had not had the intelligence background to be able to judge what mistakes he really made. It's it's extraordinary to have a, a, an, an extraordinarily intelligent man like him uh, understand that the mistakes he made were quite extraordinary, seeing that he had really no intelligence background. It's one of those sad things in our world that we think that a man who is extremely bright is able to do almost anything. Uh, it's a sad story, but it's a story which probably we have repeated many times. Well, Peter, that's uh, that's
1: quite a story. And uh, I know many times in intelligence, uh, uh, ethical questions are faced. People are, are are faced with decisions which, in many cases, they're unprepared for by background or discipline or... Or even or academic training, so I think that's a very lively case of just what you're talking about. Uh, you then left uh, the agency, left the intelligence business, and went on to be a very successful uh, entrepreneur, which is a great a great story in itself. And I think I would love to come back and talk to you some more about your uh, intelligence. Uh, career, your experiences, which are quite fascinating. But let me ask you before we close, is there anything you would like to add to what you've said? Any observations, any any anecdotes that you think uh, you'd like to share at this point?
0: I don't think so. The one thing I might add is when I left the agency and uh, uh, Alan Dulles gave me the uh, DIM, uh as we call it, the Distinguished Intelligence Medal. It's our highest mm award. He said, Peter, you'll be back in three months. And I said, Alan, I don't think so. I'm going to look at the real world, but I'll come back and visit you, which I did incidentally. We kept up uh, for considerable time. And I think uh, we all have profited by being CIA. We learned the importance of intelligence. We learned that it is essential for the government and that it is a very good preparation for a disciplined life. And we can all do with discipline, be it in business or in intelligence or any other enterprise. I look back to my career happily I've kept up with many friends. Unfortunately, most of them are no longer there, but it's been part of my life and a very important part.
1: Well, Peter, it's been wonderful talking with you. I look forward to speaking with you again. Uh, Let me just use this occasion to thank you for your service to our country, your very special service, and uh, uh, to wish you well in the coming years. And uh, so thank thank you very you very much again, Peter.
0: Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it.
1: Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spy museum, That's one word, dot org. That's spycast at SpyMuseum. dot org. Thank you.